Today we are focused on the items of head coverings and hair lengths and the application for today. Last week uh, we touched on it just a tad, but this week we're really going to face it and come to some conclusions. <laughs> uh, at least I will, um, and we'll go from there. This is a very relevant conversation, by the way, when we start talking about things like this. You might uh, be prone to start thinking, well, how is this for us? This isn't for our culture, our time. Well, let me read to you a couple of headlines from the last couple of weeks here in America. This is from Yahoo News. Yahoo News said this, uh, this is just the headline, American Medical Association recommends removing sex from birth certificates. The American Medical Association doesn't think we should say if a child is male or female. Okay, that's a proper response. Uh, second headline, this is from USA Today. USA Today has this headline, why marriage is still a sexist institution and what we can do about it. Do you think our world is confused about gender? Do you think our world is confused about roles in marriage? And do you think they know anything about roles in the church? It's a relevant conversation because our world is talking about it week in and week out. And we need to see what God has to say. So that's what we're going to look to see in 1 Corinthians 11 today. Last week's message was deep message. We didn't cover very many topics, but the topics we did cover were deep. This week is going to be wide, and we're going to hit things pretty fast, okay? Uh, most sermons, at least in my mind, are designed to be like a commercial flight where you are taken up to the air quite easily and no bumps, and then you land the plane softly, and it was just right on time. This sermon today is more like an Apache helicopter ride, okay? So uh, be prepared for that in your heart. Uh, but I'm going to start at verse 2, read down through verse 16, and then I'll pray. 1 Corinthians 11:2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent from man, nor is man independent from woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. Father, we thank you for your word that you have inspired each and every word of Scripture. 
and that in your mighty providence you've preserved your word for us today, that we may see and learn and apply what it is you have for us. God, please give us grace today as we come to you wanting to just honor you the way that you are to be honored. It is our obligation to honor you. Have us to see that in this text today and have us to be moved by your spirit in unity and in love that we would lift you up in all things. And I ask, Lord, that though I feel totally unworthy and I know that I am a sinner by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. Please give us grace in these ways we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please get your notes out. You will want to take notes today uh, as much as you can. There isn't enough room there. You need three or four more sheets like that to have enough room. But uh, you can at least try to jot some things down, and then hopefully later you can go back and listen to this as it's being recorded and everything else. We are going to cover a lot today, and I should say, too, that today at 4.30, I'll be back here at the building for anybody who wants to come by and talk about this more. You know, it's always true for a preacher that he's only able to give a fraction of what he studies for every sermon, but especially for this sermon. I'm, I'm giving you just a small fraction of what I've learned over the last few weeks. I've been preparing for this sermon uh, for some time. And uh, you'll have lots of questions, no doubt. And so we can talk about those today before you leave if you want to, or just come back at 4.30, that would be great. But to start us off today, I'm going to give you 10 conclusions, one pastor's 10 conclusions. I'm the one pastor. (laughs) And here are my uh, 10 conclusions to start us off. The first seven are going to go pretty quickly, and then we're going to slow down. But here are 10 conclusions I've come to as I've studied this text and studied everything around this text, and I thought it would be helpful to start here. The first conclusion that I want to put forth to you today is that God has designed a purpose for our appearance. God has designed a purpose for our appearance. Deuteronomy 22.5, I know we're going back to the Old Testament law here, but in Deuteronomy 22.5, God said to Israel, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And we recognize this as not just a command for those people at that time, but there is a principle to be applied to be applied across all generations, that God is not a fan of cross-dressing, is He? But God actually cares about the way we present ourselves. God cares about how we reflect His design in the way that we dress. And so this is being said at a minimum, that God has a purpose, He's designed a purpose for our appearance. But I think there's more being said in this passage, but at least we can start there. Secondly, those who say that head coverings or hair length, uh, as Paul qualifies it here, are not for today, have the burden of proof. Okay? And I've not given you enough space to write all that out on blank there, but you can find space, I'm assuming, to write it. Those who claim that these instructions are not for today have the burden of proof. I encourage several of you to read through this passage or read through the whole chapter each day, if you could, uh, throughout this month. And as you read through it, a plain reading of this text does seem to indicate that we are to be doing certain things with our heads. (laughs) A plain reading of the text comes across that way, doesn't it? So if we're going to say that these instructions don't apply today, well, then the burden of proof is on us to make that case because the text of Scripture doesn't give any time indicators on these instructions. 
Thirdly, we are in an extreme minority in church history if we see head coverings and hair length as controversial. If we see hair length conversations or head covering conversations as controversial, we are in an extreme minority in church history. One of the most fascinating things I've learned through this study is that this didn't become controversial until about 100 years ago. The church has existed for 2,000 years. And it wasn't until the last 100 years, but particularly the last 60 years, that this became a hot-button, controversial issue in the church. And so we just have to recognize our place in history. Again, not making any kind of big statements on this, just recognizing that's the fact. Fourth, this text is about both sexes. This text is about both male and female. This text isn't just about males, it's not just about females, it's about both. The symmetry that's found in this text is vital to understanding the text. If you maintain the symmetry found in the text where it doesn't just say a woman should cover her head, and that's typically what we think of, it equally and just as forcefully says a man should uncover his head. And so if we're going to maintain that symmetry, it's going to keep us from some inconsistent views that we could project onto the text. Fifthly, here's maybe the first big statement. Hair is not the covering. Hair isn't the covering. Look down at verse 15 with me again in our text, and you see that we have this statement after a rhetorical question from Paul. He says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And perhaps it's tempting to say, okay, well, that's what Paul was talking about the whole time. When we go back and read earlier when he's talking about covering or uncovering, he was talking about physical hair and that a woman's physical hair is given to her for covering. Well, let me tell you why I don't believe that's the case. We have a new word that shows up in verse 15. This is the first time the word shows up in the whole New Testament, that word for covering at the end of verse 15. It's a word that can reference a shawl or a robe, uh, a garment, some type of clothing. And Paul here is making the case in verses 14 and 15 that God has given a woman her hair, and he's given it to her as a natural covering. But he's left the conversation about what they are to do when they pray and prophesy. That's found back in verses 4 through 6. So if we believe that the hair is the covering, go back to verse 6 with me and look at this. And I'll read it with that interpretation. For if a woman does not let her hair grow out, let her also cut off her hair. Do you see how this would confuse Paul's instruction? He's not saying that the hair is the covering because he's saying if a woman doesn't cover her, hair, her head, she should have her hair cut off. He goes on to say, not only cut off, but even shaved, two different words. And so it's not talking about a woman growing her hair out long, and that's the covering. Otherwise, verse 6 becomes totally illogical. We can't do anything with verse 6. And some in history have supposed in the last few decades have supposed, well, maybe Paul was talking about growing her hair out, but then putting it up in a bun, some sort of bun on top of her head, and that's the covering. Well, look at verse 4 with me, and remember the symmetry we're supposed to keep in this passage. Every man who has hair on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. That's how that would then read. Is a man supposed to shave his head every time he goes to pray or prophesy? I don't think that's what Paul's saying. So I conclude then that hair isn't the covering that Paul has in view in verses 4 through 6. Conclusion number 6, as you're taking notes, conclusion number 6, coverings are not 24-7. Coverings are not 24-7. Clearly what Paul has in view here is the event of praying and prophesying. That's what Paul has in view. 
He's talking about covering or uncovering during that specific event. Paul's not issuing a uniform for men and women in the church. Paul's not giving them a costume. Paul is saying during this event, this is the action you are to take. Seventh, coverings illustrate headship, not just gender differences. Covering or uncovering the head illustrates headship, not just gender differences. Paul here is talking about the function in the assembly between men and women. When they come together in corporate worship during times of prayer and prophecy, how are they to take action in a different way regarding their head? He's not talking about how are they to look different, and that's it. He's saying that this is to illustrate the headship that's at play in the corporate worship assembly. In fact, he gives a location for the symbol. He's speaking specifically of the head. Some make this passage out to be just a mere admonition against cross-dressing, but I think it's more than that. There's more to it than that. He's talking about illustrating headship, not just men and women looking different. So those are the first seven. Now we're going to start to slow down as I give you numbers 8, 9, and 10. Eighth, I've concluded that gender roles, head coverings, and hair length all stand or fall together. They are all intertwined. They are all intertwined. These three issues that are talked about in the text are intertwined. I believe that these points are tied together in Paul's argument. He's not presenting it like some sort of a buffet where you can take one and leave two, take two, leave one, or reject all three. They all stand or fall together. And let's start looking at the text together in verse 3. And I should mention, you know, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. If you didn't listen to last week's message, you're going to need to hear last week's message that goes with this. I'm not trying to cover everything in today's message, though we are covering a lot, but last week's message will certainly help. But let's start at verse 3 together. It says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. This covering and uncovering action is argued for on the basis of God's design and complementary roles. Do you see how in verse 3, Paul issues this statement, how man is the head of a woman? And then he goes right into verse 4 and says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. A man shames his authority, Christ, if he prays with his head covered. That's what Paul is saying in verse 4. He's disgracing his head because Christ is his authority. And he goes on in verse 5 and says that a woman shames her head because she has authority over her also, doesn't she? The man is the head of a woman, and she disgraces her head if she prays uncovered. And it's not just that she shames her own husband or dishonors her own husband, Paul says, but in verse 6, it indicates here that she disgraces her own physical head by doing this. God's design is for the woman's hair to be her glory. Verses 14 and 15 again illustrate this. Doesn't nature teach you this? God has given her her hair, that it would be a glory to her. And we all recognize that, we should recognize that a woman shaving her head is unnatural. It is unnatural. That's what Paul's basing his argument off of here in verses 5 and 6. It would be unnatural for the woman to do such a thing. 
And he says it's just as unnatural for the woman's head to be uncovered with some sort of physical covering on her hair. They're both unnatural in Paul's argument. You can't hold to one without the other. You can't say, yes, that would be unnatural for her to shave her head, but it's not unnatural for a physical covering to be absent. Paul's equating the two, isn't he? They are both unnatural in Paul's argument. Now, some say, they look at this passage and say, well, in verse 6, Paul's saying it would be bad for a woman to shave her head because at that time there were prostitutes who would shave their heads, and that was a mark of a prostitute. That's not Paul's argument. First of all, that's a dubious point in history that requires research to back it up. But Paul's argument is not about that. His argument is about what's natural, that God has given her her hair, and therefore her hair is to be her glory. That's why some early church commentators, I've got a quote here from Chrysostom, living in the 300s or 400s AD, he said this, if you throw off the veil, throw off that imposed by nature too. That's what Paul's saying here. If you take off the physical covering, go ahead and take off all your hair. It's one and the same as far as nature is concerned in Paul's argument and what is good in the church. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, for a man ought not to have his head covered. And then here's the basis. Why shouldn't a man have his head covered? Since he is the image and glory of God. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the glory of God. God's created design for the man is the basis for the reason why his head should be uncovered when he prays. That's Paul's reasoning. They're tied together. You can't separate these ideas. They're joined together. The practice of uncovering his head rests on the reality that he is God's glory. They're tied together. The fact that this is who God has created him to be requires the practice. And yet it's different for the woman. Look at verse 8. For a, well, the second half of verse 7, actually. The woman is the glory of man, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, you see, her practice is also rooted in God's created design for her. You can't separate the two. The two arguments go together. Why should a woman cover her head? Well, it's because of how God created her to be. Women ought to have the symbol of authority on their heads, he says, because of the angels. Now, we would do well to pause here and talk about that phrase, because of the angels. No one knows what it means, all right? I'm just going to tell you that. No one knows what it means except for God and perhaps Paul when he wrote it. We don't know. This is a unique phrase in the Bible. We don't have an elaboration of this point, but there are a few ideas that we can extract from it. And the first thing that I want to say is that Paul is pointing here when he says because of the angels, though we don't know fully what it means, we know this, he's pointing to a transcendent reality as, again, as the basis for why a woman should cover her head. He's pointing to something outside of the culture. He's pointing to a transcendent reality, the presence of angels. He uses that as a basis for the argument. And we know this, too, about angels. Angels are present among us, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Okay, you're looking at me like maybe not. They are. <laughs> uh, if that's news to you, you can write that down, too. Angels are present among us. And they're not just present and just sit there like blind and deaf beings. They observe. They watch and they listen. Angels observe. Back uh, earlier in Paul's argument, or in Paul, not Paul's argument here, but in the letter, Paul wrote in chapter 4, and he was being sarcastic when he did this, but the point is still there. He says, we, the apostles, have become a spectacle to angels. Well, angels spectate 
angels are among us and they spectate. They observe and they learn when they're among us. And so that led John Calvin in his commentary on this verse. John Calvin said this, Angels, as ministering spirits who perfectly obey God's commands of order, are present as we worship and would be offended at any disregard for God's design and will. I think that's a good summary. I think that's fair to say that we can say that based on the phrase, because of the angels. This is also a good place to pause, not just to think about that statement, but to answer another objection that someone might have to the argument I've been making so far. Someone might say, well, there's no command in this passage that men and women do this. There's no imperative in the passage that says men are to uncover and women are to cover. And that's actually true. But let's look again at verses 7 and 10, the verses we just covered. Look at verse 7. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head. Now, even though it's true that this isn't in the imperative, it's not a command, it is an indicative in the Greek language, can't you see that moral obligation is still being inserted there? There's still obligation. It's the word for ought that brings with it obligation. And again, down in verse 10, therefore the woman ought to, so the man ought not to, but the woman ought to have this authority on her head. So there is moral obligation in the passage, and you have to face that. You can't just say, well, there's no grammatical imperative statements in the text, therefore this doesn't apply to to us, and it didn't even really apply to them because Paul wasn't really commanding them. That's kind of missing the whole point. There is moral obligation found in this passage. So that was all for reason number eight, that these three things are tied together. Number nine, my my ninth conclusion Gender roles, head coverings, and hair were not cultural instructions. These were not cultural instructions. Now, this is probably the most common retort that you'll hear from people when you start talking about 1 Corinthians 11. I'm sure you've assumed it like I did for so long, hearing, well, that was that culture. This is the worst argument you could make for this passage, and I'm going to give you lots of reasons why. We're going to spend lots of time on this point because I was just astonished at my studies through this, not at anything I've done, but what I discovered. I told a couple friends it was almost like starting to realize that a conspiracy theory is true. I was kind of having that feeling (laughs) over the last few weeks. So let's look at this, um, that... These are not cultural instructions, and in fact, I'm going to present to you that these were countercultural instructions. But here's the first reason why I believe these were not cultural instructions. One, Paul doesn't mention the culture. You think that's a pretty big part of the, for a pretty big part of the argument? Yeah, he doesn't mention the culture. In fact, he appeals to creation, God's created design. He appeals to nature itself, what God has given men, men and women. And he appeals to angels. All three things exist outside of the culture. And that's the basis for his argument throughout the entire passage. That's pretty vital, isn't it, if we're looking for clues in the text? In fact, I would go as far to say that it's impossible from the text alone to say that Paul is reasoning from culture. It's not there. Second reason why I believe these weren't cultural instructions is that Paul has the assembly in view, the Christian assembly in view. He's not envisioning interacting with the culture. Remember, Paul is talking about prayer and prophecy. He's not talking about going out and intermingling with the culture. And so when people make the argument, well, this was based on culture, why would Paul base this on culture? Well, because he doesn't want the culture to be offended. Well, this is talking about the Christian assembly. 
It's not talking about going out and offending or not offending the culture. It's talking about a corporate worship practice. So how could the culture be offended when we're talking about the fellowship of the saints? Third, the basis for hair length is nature, how things truly are according to God's design. We really talked about that, talked through that in detail last week. The basis for this, back in verses 14 and 15, when it comes to hair length, is nature. Paul says in verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. This is God's design. Men are designed for short hair and women for long hair, normatively speaking. And you can go into biological evidence for this that have to do with testosterone and estrogen. John MacArthur does that in his sermon. I won't get into all of that here, but there is biological evidence that would hint at some of this. And, of course, just the way that uh, men and women go about their lives throughout history and the way that they've worn their hair indicates this. It's by nature. And I, I thought of some illustrations for this because I, I think it's important that you grasp this point through the text. Think about the military. The military recognizes this point, don't they? When a woman joins the military, she doesn't have to get the standard military cut that a man does. She's allowed to wear her hair in a ponytail. And in fact, earlier, or in a bun has the way, is the way that it has been, but earlier this year they announced a woman can wear her hair in a ponytail because the bun was actually so tight that it started to pull out some of her hair for a lot of women. Why does the military care about if a woman keeps her hair? You ever wondered that? Why does the military just take a razor to women's hair? But doesn't nature itself teach you that if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her? But for the men, if it touches the collar, if it goes over the ears, cut it off. We're not worried about preserving men's hair in the military. Nature itself teaching. You might respond, well, what about other militaries that have existed throughout history, like the Spartans? That's an argument that some people make. There have been subcultures that have existed in history where the men have had long hair. Well, what about those? Well, let's pause for a moment and remember that subcultures don't define what's natural, do they? God defines what is natural. We don't look at the culture and say, well, that must be the way God designed us. We look at God's Word and, and we learn that's how God designed us. In fact, you can find subcultures throughout history where the women have been in charge in the culture and in the home. And it was taught that way that the women are to lead and the men are to submit. Does that teach us that, that, that that's God's design for men and women? Well, certainly not. We have clear instruction otherwise. And here's a thought experiment for you, again, thinking about hair links that I posed to a couple people this week. Say we got new Sunday school curriculum for the children in this church. Say we, we purchased some new stuff and we're opening it up and we're flipping through the materials and it has the cartoon Adam and Eve in there like they always do. What would you think, what would your gut reaction be if Adam had a ponytail and Eve had a buzz cut? Would our gut reaction be, well, it could have been that way, we don't know, different culture? Or would we look at that and say, I'm not thinking that's right? Or imagine that the young women in this church jumped on a new trend of buzz cutting their hair or even shaving their heads. Would you feel some sort of obligation to have a conversation with them? And how would you base your argument off the Word of God if you believe that was just cultural? If it's just cultural, there's no problem with it. But if you really have a problem with it and you believe it goes against God's design to some sort of degree, then you're saying, yeah, this transcends culture. So remember, 
When Paul refers to nature, he's not saying, look at whatever everybody else is doing, and that must be natural. He's talking about what God has given us. And Paul taught that if the covering was removed, the hair should be removed too. That having the covering absent in the corporate worship assembly was just as unnatural as a woman having her head shaved. That was his argument in verse 6. Fourth reason why I believe this isn't talking about cultural instruction is because Paul's not exactly known for instructing the church by saying, hey, just take cues from whatever the culture is doing, is he? When have you read in Paul and any of his letters to the churches where he just said, hey, just look at what everybody else is doing and you do it? That's not the way Paul makes his arguments in his letters. In fact, in Romans 12 too, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. And let's think even further on this. This is just so crazy to me. Paul is referencing worship here, prayer and prophecy in the local assembly. Paul had just written in the last chapter that pagan worshipers are actually sacrificing to demons. So as Paul saying, just look at how those demon worshipers worship and you just copy it. There's no way that that would be Paul's argument, would it? It just doesn't make sense to me and I don't see how you get there in the text. And if we were to take that view and then look for application today, if that was our view, see what the culture's doing and copy it, then we should demand all the men in this church wear white shirts and ties to church. Are we going to make that application? No, we're not. Fifth reason why I don't believe this is a cultural instruction, there is no convincing evidence in history to say that the culture was doing this. <laughs> People look at Paul's instructions and say, well, that's what the culture was doing. Show me. Show me the evidence. Go study. Look at literature. Look at archaeology. Look at images that have been dug up and tell me some convincing argument that that's what they were doing. Because here's what I found as I did this study. This is from uh, Plutarch. He's a first century Roman historian, first century AD, and he was answering the question, why is it that when they, the Roman men, worship the gods, they cover their heads? The question itself tells you that that's what they were doing. But this is his answer. They worshipped the gods, either humbling themselves by concealing the head or rather by pulling the toga over their ears as a precaution, lest any ill-omened and baleful sound from without should reach them while they were praying. That was the practice of Roman men according to a historian whose works have been preserved. Now, Corinth, of course, was in Greece. It wasn't, you know, adjacent to Rome and Italy or anything like that, but they were in they were under Roman rule. This is the Roman Empire, and Corinth was around all practices. Here are a couple more. This is Virgil, a first century B.C. Roman poet. He wrote in one of his poems, When now thou raisest altars and payest vows on the shore, veil thy hair with covering of purple robe, that in the worship of the gods no hostile face may intrude. You can tell that was translated during the Elizabethan period, couldn't you? But... Uh, his instruction there was for all people who were worshiping the gods, cover yourself so that way no hostile face may intrude on your worship. One more, Dionysius. He's a first century B.C. Greek historian, first century B.C. He writes, It was in accordance with the traditional usages then that Camillus, another man, after making his prayer and drawing his garment down over his head, wished to turn his back. There were certainly garments used in worship, and men would even cover their heads in worship. These were pagan worship practices. So it's not like Paul was looking at something that was totally one way in the culture and saying, well, because it's totally one way, that's what you should do too. History tells us otherwise. 
For Gentile women, their practices were all over the map. You can find things that say, yes, they absolutely covered their heads in worship. In other areas, no, they didn't. You can find evidence of either. Jewish men sometimes would cover their heads. In the Talmud that was written a couple hundred years after this, in the Talmud it says, yeah, you can or you don't have to either way. Uh, it just depends on how you feel or, wh or what the context is. Jewish men did have a garment that they wore around, but they were never instructed in the Old Testament to cover their heads with it. They had a garment on which the four corners they were to put tassels, but never were they told, put it over your head when you pray or when you prophesy. It's just not in the text. Women uh, in the Jewish communities were required to veil any time they left their house. If they left their home, they were required to be veiled. But that's not Paul's instruction here. Paul gives a different instruction. It's talking about when praying and prophesying. So it's a really an uphill argument to say Paul was looking at the culture and was copying them. And if you say that he was basing his instruction on what was culturally practiced, can you show me in Scripture, number one, and number two, can you show me in history? I'm from the show me state, so you've got to show me, all right? Show me, because I couldn't find it. And I looked, because that would be a much easier explanation of this passage. But continuing on, even on the same point that these aren't cultural instructions, number six, culture doesn't always determine physical expressions in the church. Culture doesn't always determine physical expressions in the, ch in the church. In this very chapter, chapter 11, Paul is getting, in verse 17 and following, he's getting into communion. Observing the Lord's table with bread and with wine. What does our culture know about communion? Could our culture explain communion? If they don't know the gospel, they don't know anything about communion. In fact, in the, in the early church, these were called love feasts that they would have. And the culture was saying they were cannibals because they were getting together in their love feasts and eating flesh and consuming blood. Shouldn't that have been a basis to say, oh, the culture doesn't get it, so we just need to stop? You don't see that in the New Testament. They were to do it regardless. What does our culture understand about baptism? Nothing. The culture doesn't understand what baptism symbolizes. And think about it. I mean, we recognize in the church, we recognize that there are debates, legitimate debates on methodology about how we observe communion, about how we observe baptism, about how we sing. You can go on and on. There are debates on methodology, but never to the exclusion of those practices. Never to the exclusion. Just because we're not sure exactly how they did it, that doesn't mean we write it all off. It's an important point. In fact, as you read through this text, again, I've mentioned it once already, Paul specifically indicates the bodily location of the symbol. It's to be on the head. It's a detailed directive in that sense. So we have to be consistent in this point. If we're saying that this practice has gone away, well, is there anything that replaces it? And if so, does that actually reflect the illustration of headship that Paul is desiring here? That it had be something with the head to reflect headship? And let me ask you this too, if, if we're looking at our culture and saying, well, our culture doesn't practice it and so we shouldn't practice it anymore, we should take something else from our culture that they understand and apply that to our church to illustrate this point, what could you take from our culture that would illustrate headship? Some people say wedding rings. You've got men and women who wear wedding rings, and this shows that we're together and that we're observing marriage. That doesn't do it. <laughs> for many reasons. Number one, the man is supposed to be uncovered, so men take your wedding rings off if you're going to use that as the symbol. Number two, it doesn't say anything about headship. It has nothing to do with the head. It's on your hand. That argument just doesn't work with the text if we're basing our reasoning 
off the text alone. Some people might say, well, what about the holy kiss? All right, this is a pretty common argument. The holy kiss is instructed in Scripture, and we don't practice the holy kiss anymore, I mean, except for me and my wife. But the rest of you, you know, when I, when I come here, we're kissing each other. Isn't that a cultural expression? Well, it was a cultural expression. And I'll say right from the beginning, if Paul would have reasoned to the practice of the holy kiss the way he reasoned to the covering or uncovering of the head and the hair links, I would have a different view of it. If that would have been outlined in Scripture the same way that this is outlined in Scripture, I would have a different view of it. But the holy kiss comes up five times in the New Testament. Every time, it's greeting one another with a holy kiss. It's a greeting. It's a cultural expression of greeting. It has nothing to do with the corporate worship element of praying and prophesying, but rather greeting one another. And that's the way they did it in that culture. Well, you might say, okay, what about foot washing then? Okay, maybe not the holy kiss, but what about foot washing? Because Jesus did bend down and wash the disciples' feet, and he says, as I have done to you, you ought to do to one another. I have left you an example. Well, that's pretty strong, right? So why aren't we washing each other's feet? Because the argument can be made, look, we're a a socks and shoe-wearing culture. the, The whole principle doesn't translate. Their feet were really dirty. They were a sandals culture. Well, let's think through that for a moment. First, Jesus used the word example, not the word type. There are two different words that could have been used when Jesus expressed that, and he said, I left you an example. He didn't say, I left you a model. He didn't say, I left you a pattern. There was another word for that, a stronger word that means you are to replicate. But instead, he uses a broader word, example. And we see something very interesting in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is writing to Timothy about widows, and he gives qualifications for widows who are truly widows indeed. And he says, if she has washed the saints' feet. He uses that phrase metaphorically. We understand, and I think you could understand this from the gospel account in John 13 also, but understand by the way Paul used it, that it was a demonstration of love, and it became a metaphor in the early church. I've used it as a metaphor around here for washing each other's feet. Paul used it that way, and I think we can too. When we examine the John 13 account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I think we see a demonstration of love in the Old Covenant because Jesus hadn't even died yet. They were still in the Old Covenant. A demonstration of love there. I don't think Jesus was giving a practice for the church. He gives no transcendent basis as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11. He doesn't appeal to created design. He doesn't appeal to nature. He doesn't appeal to angels. I think he's just demonstrating love and saying we are to demonstrate that sacrificial agape love also. Seventh reason why I believe that this was not cultural instruction, the practice of covering extended beyond Corinth. (laughs) The practice of covering or uncovering extended beyond Corinth. All the churches that Paul was aware of also practiced this. Look at verse 16 with me again. After Paul gives his long argument for 14, 15 verses. He says in verse 16, But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Paul is saying if anyone is going to reject this instruction on authority in the gender roles, hair length, head coverings, if someone's going to reject this, we have no other practice. We hold to this, and when he says we, we can infer that means the apostles, those who were instructing the early church. They held to this practice. There was no other practice they had. Now, some say that Paul here is backtracking on his argument and that he's actually saying at this point, well, if anyone wants to throw a fit, we actually don't even do this. 
Because the text could be read that way if you don't slow down and look at it grammatically. But I, you have to ask the question, why would Paul build this argument just to say, actually, nobody does this? That would make no sense. This was a practice in the early church. And his travels indicate that this statement transcends culture. Paul was pretty widely traveled, wasn't he? Asia Minor and all over the place. And this is what all the churches did, according to Paul. In fact, at the beginning of the letter, he says that I greet you along with the churches of God. From all of his travels, all of his knowledge, he was basing this argument. But some might say, well, wait a second, though. This is the only New Testament passage that talks about it. We have no other passage of the New Testament that talks about this practice in the church. And that's true. We don't have another passage. We don't have an account in the book of Acts of it happening. We don't have the instructions of Jesus on this. We just have this one passage. But can I tell you something plainly and bluntly? I suppose we have that kind of relationship, don't we? Um, the one passage standard is a made-up standard, and it's not a good standard. It's made up, and it's not good. Can I just say that to you? Um, Paul says in verse 16 again that the churches of God, plural, the ones that he was aware of, which are many, they had no other practice. So even though this is the only place in the New Testament that talks about this issue, how much weightier could it be than Paul saying, all the churches I know practice this? That's very, very heavy. If we made a list of doctrines, think about this too. If we made a list of doctrines that only had one main passage to hold them up in the New Testament, if you made a list of those, I wonder how many of those you'd be comfortable just doing away with. Probably not very many. Milton Vincent, he's a pastor in Southern California who did a long series on this text, and it was influential on me as I studied. He posed this question to those who say, well, it's only one passage. He asked the question, how many times does God need to tell us something? And that's a very legitimate question. He used the illustration of our children. If we tell our child to do something and the child doesn't do it and say, well, you only told me once, would that fly in your house? Not in mine. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. It's a made-up standard. So my final word on the cultural thing is that it's best not to seek a cultural escape. Just focus on the Word of God. My tenth and final conclusion, this one's shorter. Tenth and final conclusion is that Traditions reference handed-down teachings meant to continue on as given. Another argument you might hear about this passage is back in verse 2, look, 11, verse 2. Paul wrote, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So some people will look at that and say, look, he's talking about traditions, and that means that we can forget about it which is kind of a non-sequitur, that whole statement. Uh, traditions, Paul has in view what he has given to them, what's been handed down. In fact, the makeup of that word in the original language means to hand down. It was something that was given to them by Paul, and he's praising them for it. That's because apostolic instruction carried divine weight. When Paul taught something, when Peter taught something, when John taught something, they were teaching on God's authority in the church. In fact, if you have a King James Version this morning, you'll notice that it doesn't say traditions. It says ordinances. You've kept the ordinances. So it's not an optional instruction. But, but, but verse 13, here's another argument. I'm trying to anticipate most of your arguments. Verse 13, Paul says, judge for yourselves. So doesn't that mean that it's optional? Because Paul goes on to say that this is just a matter that we can decide on our own. Is that what Paul meant by that phrase? 
Look back at chapter 10, verse 15, just the chapter before, verse 15, we covered this a few weeks ago. Paul wrote to the same church in the same context, saying, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So was Paul saying in the verse before this, verse 15, I might be wrong about what I'm saying, you just figure it out. Certainly that's not what Paul was saying. He was indicating a deep spiritual truth, yet right before that he says, you judge. He's expecting them to follow his train of thought. He's expecting them to have understanding, to be mature, and to recognize what he's calling them to do. He's not saying, ah, flip a coin. That's not Paul's argument. And remember, the contentious view is the minority of one view in Paul's wide understanding of church practices. If you're going to resist this, Paul says, you're the only one, because all the other churches of God observe this. Wow. So those are my ten conclusions. And I think it's appropriate to say, well, now what? <laughs> well, now what? There are two last off-ramps on the road to upholding head coverings and non-head coverings and hair length standards. If you didn't know, we are kind of on that okay? to catch you up if you've dozed off or something. We're on that road, and there are two last off-ramps. If you've been with me up until now and saying, okay, well then, how do I get off this road? Well, I'm going to give you two options, and uh, you, you work it out, okay? The first option is that some people see praying and prophesying that Paul is talking about in this passage, praying and prophesying, as the exercising of the charismatic gifts, Praying in tongues is what they see praying as, and prophesying being the gift of prophecy and exercising the gift of prophecy. Now, that could very well be what Paul meant when he said prophesying, but let's just dwell on the prayer one first. They view that this is talking about praying in tongues only. Wayne Grudem takes this view, Joe Rigney takes this view, and some others. And you could make the argument as a cessationist, one who believes that the gift of tongues has ceased and the gift of prophecy has ceased, that because those gifts have ceased, this practice is no longer to be in the church. You can make that argument. Well, here are my problems uh, with that view. First is that the text doesn't say praying in tongues. It just doesn't say praying in tongues. It says prayer. It says praying without the identifier or the modifier of praying in tongues. And if you go three chapters later in chapter 14, we won't turn there today, but in chapter 14, Paul talks about praying in tongues. It does come up in this very book. But when he talks about that, it's very clear he's talking about that. It's very clear he's talking about praying in tongues. He will say praying in tongues. And I have an issue when it comes to Bible interpretation of taking a three chapters later context and pulling it back into this chapter. Now, some people have tried to make arguments that that's Paul's style, that he brings something up a little bit and then expands on it later. I don't think that works here. It's very convenient. Again, it's one of those things that sounds really nice and I Kind of wish it was that way because that would be pretty convenient, but I don't see it. It's an abnormal method of interpretation, and it gives Paul an, an unstated foundation for his reasoning. His reasoning throughout this passage doesn't say anything about the exercising of the charismatic gifts, and I don't want to give Paul an argument that he doesn't use. I want to stick with Paul's argument. Okay, well, if you've scratched that one off the list like I have, you've got one, one last off-ramp. This view says... Paul doesn't define what the covering is, so it must have been understood by that generation of the church, and only that generation was obligated 
those who understood. Only that generation was obligated to continue the practice. This is essentially the view that Alistair Begg takes. You could look at it and say, look, there were words in the Greek where he could have specified the type of garment. He could have said shawl. He could have said hat. He could have said all sorts of things. But he didn't specify what it was. Therefore, they must have known, and once the church through the generations stopped understanding what Paul meant, well, then the practice just faded with it, and that's okay. Because the church didn't preserve the details Churches today aren't required to observe it. Well, I have an issue. I have a big issue with this. And I can illustrate it by asking you a couple of questions. First, is baptism supposed to be observed in live water or contained water? Is baptism supposed to be in a pond or a lake or a stream or in a pool or a trough like we use? Which one? And if we don't know, then we should just stop. That's what the Salvation Army's done. They don't observe baptism anymore. They wave a flag over a new convert. Why not? Are we going to be consistent in our hermeneutic? Is, the, is communion, is it supposed to be leavened or unleavened bread? Is it supposed to be fermented juice or non-fermented juice? Hey, if we don't know, we should just stop. See how crazy this view is? <laughs> now, I've got a lot of respect for the people who, who uphold that view, but not on that view. I have no respect for that view. I think it's a silly view. It's another abnormal method of interpretation. And we're sitting back saying, as Bible readers, well, God didn't give us enough detail so we can't obey. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. So before I give you my current final analysis, let me give you my current questions. I am still wondering what is intended by the phrase praying and prophesying. I haven't come to a definition on that uh, I don't believe it's talking about praying in tongues only, I'll tell you that much, but I still need to define that phrase, and I I don't know exactly what that means. Does it mean broader ministry activities? Some people say prayer is just a word that signifies our vertical relationship with God when we do something that's between us and God. Prophesying has to do with the assembly. It's whenever we're uh, speaking to other people in the assembly, and it's a catch-all phrase for just general ministry activity. Could be, I don't know. Is it talking, for us today, is it talking about just prayer? Because if the gift of prophecy has ceased, which we believe it has, are we left with just prayer? Is it only referencing prayer? I I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's debated, and I don't have a good answer. A second question that I still have is, does Paul have just married men and women in view, or does he have all men and women in view? That's a tough one. That's quite difficult Last week I taught verses 3 through 10 essentially have husbands and wives in view, and verses 11 through 15, it it broadens, it goes from there, it it expands out from there, and I still hold to that view through more studying this past week. And I believe that because Paul's talking about headship very clearly starting in verse 3. He's talking about the authority that one man would have over one woman in the God-created design of marriage. I see that there. He's referencing the Genesis account throughout, which is in reference to the husband and wife relationship. But in verse 11, he does leave the marital relationship. In verse 11, he talks about all men and all women generally, and he keeps talking about that through verse 15. And right in the middle of that, you have verse 13, where Paul's saying, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So I don't know exactly who he's referencing here when he's talking about the practice of covering and uncovering. I'm still wrestling with that, still in process. Answering the questions like, 
Are single men required to uncover? Are single women required to cover? What about children? At what age does it start? There are all kinds of loose ends there, and I just don't have a lot of good answers. But here's my third question, third and final current question. What are we afraid of? I don't know about you, but for me, this passage can make you kind of nervous. This passage can expose a lot of things in your heart through the emotion of fear. What are we afraid of? And I do, I do mean we when I say that, not you, we, all of us. Are we afraid of looking stupid? You ladies, are you afraid of looking stupid? Because you should think about this, how do you know you don't look stupid now? <laughs> not just the way that we see things as humans, but to the angels. What we're doing right now, is this stupid to the observers of God's fellowship? Do we look stupid in God's eyes already? I think it's a legitimate question. And here's what's even worse. Are we embarrassed of what it represents? Are we embarrassed of what the covering would represent? And if that's the case, we have a lot of conversation that needs to take place. So here's my current final analysis. (laughs) Current, quote-unquote, final analysis, okay? First is that the Lord has ordered His church for all generations. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we look at explaining this point, that the Lord has ordered His church for all generations. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 8. This is another passage that can make you a little uncomfortable, especially if you're worried about looking great in the eyes of the world. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be, pers- will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. We uphold this teaching at this church. Uh, we believe that God has created men and women with different roles, and those roles have an effect on what happens in the church. You'll notice at this church, we don't have women preach. We don't have women teach men. They don't have authority over men in this church. And that's what the text plainly says. We go to a text like this, and we will deal with people who say, well, look, that was just cultural. It was accepted at Paul's time that men were just in charge and women weren't. And so Paul says, this is what you're to do in the church because that's just what everybody did. Whereas a church like ours would look at this and say, well, wait a second. Paul is rooting his argument in creation. He's going back to the relationship of Adam and Eve and what happened in the garden, and he's rooting it in God's created design. He created Adam first. 
Are we being consistent when we go to 1 Corinthians 11 where it also talks about creation? Paul is also rooting the argument for head coverings and hair lengths in God's created design. Are we being hypocrites in the way we apply? Why do we not take the not-for-today argument and apply it to gender roles? Why not? What's stopping us? Why don't we take that and apply it to communion or to baptism or to anything else? What's stopping us? The arguments in the text are stopping us. When we see the way an inspired writer of Scripture has come to a point and has reasoned for his point, and we say, well, look, that endures past that generation, past that culture. That's for us today. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 11 and say, ugh, never mind. Really, that's what's happening. You have to think about this. The Lord has ordered His church for all generations. And I'll say this too, another part of my final analysis. God wants men and women to act like it and to look like it. Both to act like it and to look like it. Paul's, covering, or Paul's argument, again, about the covering is, if a woman isn't covering, she should go ahead and shave her head. Does Paul want women shaving their heads? No. That's not what Paul was saying. It's just fine if she does that. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying her, her hair was given to her as a covering. It's a glory to her. She should definitely keep her hair, and that means the covering also. It's Paul's reasoning. And then, finally, here's the big one. Yeah. Instructions for roles, gender roles, for hair lengths, and for coverings in 1 Corinthians still apply to the church today. The roles were given at creation when God created man and woman, male and female. He created them with roles that didn't come about through the fall. But salvation has been provided because of the fall. Because they sinned, we have salvation. And so these roles continue on even in a fallen world, and even as we reflect our faith in this salvation that God has provided, there are physical symbols that reflect these things. There were physical symbols in Israel that reflected certain aspects of their faith, and we know and practice in the church today physical symbols that reflect our faith in this salvation that God has given us. When it comes to the types of coverings, we do have to say, look, he doesn't explain what they look like, so we just don't know. When it comes to what makes long hair long, what makes short hair short, he doesn't explain. We don't know. So those seem to be matters of conscience and matters of wisdom. I don't think people should be walking around with measuring sticks seeing if people's hair is a certain length. I don't think that's the case. However, we have to recognize Paul made his argument. There it is. He reasoned from a transcendent basis on multiple points, never once referring to culture, never once referring to changing with the times. So they're still for today. And how we apply that, we just need to figure it out. I also believe that at a minimum, praying and prophesying means prayer in the assembly. At a minimum, praying and prophesying has reference to the assembly and prayer in the assembly. When it comes to the other applications, again, that's something that's still open-ended that I have to wrestle with. And I've concluded this also in my final analysis that the action of symbolically covering or uncovering, doing something with that symbol, the action is in view, not the material itself as an ornament or as some sort of a uniform or something like that. The action of covering and uncovering is the symbol. 
putting yourself under the authority or recognizing for you men that you're not under the authority of another human being, but under Christ himself. Symbols do have an impact, don't they? The answer is yes. And I've got proof. Some of you, when we came out with those church bumper stickers a little while back, were afraid to put them on your car because of the way you love your neighbors on the road, all right? You were afraid because you're representing the church and you're representing God if you put the verse reference one up there. But think about this. Did it ever cross your mind that putting that on your car would affect the way you loved your neighbors on the road? It does for me. Having it on my car, I'm conscious of I'm representing God. I'm representing our church. I'm representing you all. That's our logo or that's a Bible verse, whatever it may be. It does affect the way I behave, the way I think, the way I act. Symbols have an impact. Some people say, well, it's more about what's going on inside the head than what's on the outside. I think there's a point there. It should start there. Any woman in here who's not submitting to her husband, don't put anything on your head and lie to everybody, okay? But isn't Paul's ideal both? (laughs) Isn't that Paul's ideal, that it would be both? that you'd be that way in your heart and that it would be that way in the corporate worship? I hope you see it in the text. Don't take my word for it. I hope you see it in Paul and his inspired words. And so the final thing I want to say this morning, to wrap it up, (laughs) this is not a clear obedience versus sin issue. Now, I can rightly be called inconsistent on this point because I've been giving it to you tough, haven't I? I've been laying it out there. And I can rightly be called inconsistent, but here I am. I have all kinds of application to figure out later. All kinds of application on this to just figure out as time goes. And though there is moral obligation in this passage, again, verses 7 and verses 10, verse 7 and 10, talk about ought to or ought not to, we do have to confess that there is more textual information about corporate worship practices like communion and baptism. Now, I'm not saying they're more valid at all. And I'm not saying that's a basis for writing off what Paul has just told us about head coverings and hair links. But I am saying there's more information on them. And so we are left with a lot of questions in 1 Corinthians 11, but I've given you what I believe are the biblical answers to those questions. We also recognize that good believers disagree on what these things mean. And this church won't be absolutely unified on it, I'm sure. So we just have to recognize, I'm not going to stand up here and say that anybody's in sin or not in sin one way or the other. I can't absolutely do that. But I can tell you what I believe the text says, and let God work on your conscience. My conscience has been shaped over the last few weeks as I've been preparing for this. You, maybe you remember that Wednesday night a few weeks ago, I taught with a hat on. I was at a t-ball game, and it was really windy. My hair was goofy, and I thought, I don't want to look goofy. Put a hat on. And that may have been the first time I've ever taught with a hat on as far as I can remember. You know, again, being from the Midwest and the churches associated there, it's just you don't really wear hats in, in church settings like that. And I did feel weird about it. I hadn't studied this passage. I hadn't come to a conclusion. My conscience hadn't been shaped. And I can tell you now I wouldn't do it again. So there, the, you're just hearing my heart on that and hearing where I am on that. I wouldn't do it again. So as a result of my study and my conclusions on this, I do heartily affirm the practice for men and women regarding head covering or not covering based on the text, for men not to cover and for women to cover. And I affirm it as what's proper. That's what's in our text today in verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper? And based on that text, 
I've been convicted by that. But I am in process on this. I am learning. It's so funny, you know, the world out there, they're all in process about deconstructing their whole faith and everything. And here I am talking about processing head coverings. It was just so goofy to the world. But what does the world care? What does the world matter, right? Uh, this is for the church. And as the church, we want get, to get it right, don't we? Remember last week when we were talking about what nature means, doesn't nature itself teach you? I made the point, you know, the culture doesn't define what is natural, God does, and His purpose for the church, and not just giving us the image of God, but giving us His Holy Spirit and giving us His Word, is that what is natural would be restored here. His design would be restored here, upheld here, practiced here. And so we do need to think deeply on these things and not write it off as something that doesn't matter. So when it comes to what you believe, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Face the text. I want you to deal with the text. The text. Not arguments about the text, but the text. I want you to face the text of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to face it. And I want you to reject everything that I've said that's unbiblical. Reject it all. Anything that's unbiblical that's come out of my mouth, reject it. I want you to obey God, not me. And I want you to be open to God's instruction. We're not going to force anybody in any direction here, okay? Do you believe that the covering is a woman's hair? That, that could be your conclusion from the text. Do you believe that the practice of covering has ceased because we're not practicing tongues or prophecy anymore? That could be your conclusion from the text. But I want you to deal with it. And I want you to learn. I don't want you to just take what I say or just reject what I say. I want you to hear me out and then just face the text of Scripture. So as you come to a conclusion, I want you to ask these questions to yourself and answer them. Number one, is your view based on the text? Okay, that's obviously got to be the first one. And I want you to answer this. Are you avoiding the text? Are you avoiding it? And third, are you making a fear-based decision? Fear-based decisions are always bad in life, especially in the church. So I'm sure you have some questions on this. Uh, perhaps you're wondering, why do the majority of evangelicals today reject the position that I just put forth? And I've got some thoughts on that. I've got thoughts on all kinds of stuff. But today at 4.30, you can uh, come here and ask any question you want, and I'll do my best to try to work through it with you, and we'll see where we go together, okay? Just making myself available in that way. I don't feel any bullet holes, so good job restraining yourselves. Uh, I'm going to pray, and while I do that, why don't the praise team come up and we'll close with a song of unity and love. Father, we thank you again so much for your word and for our salvation, for all that you've provided for us. We thank you that you care for us in so many ways, and we ask that you would bless this church as we seek to honor you rightly, as we seek to truly do right by you in your church to represent you well that you would be honored, not just in the way that we interact with the culture, but the way we interact with each other in the body. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.